Good morning. Let's pray. Father, indeed, uh, we would desire to be blessings to all around us. At this moment, bless us with the power and the presence and guidance of your spirit, that all words spoken and all words received would be according to your will for the enrichment of the souls of the saints and the preparation that they might be made adequate for every work unto which you've prepared and set before each of us as individuals and as a corporate body here at Claremont Bible Chapel. We pray for all the meetings in this area, the dear saints gathered together seeking to be blessings and to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we ask all these things. Amen. Wow, the music, you know, um, several times ago, I, a couple months ago, I was joking with our sister Lauren. I'm almost tempted to ask you to, to play, we must sing, must I go in empty-handed for a, a message of exhortation, you know, not to beat people up. This assembly, I honestly can bear witness to you, is not going to go in empty-handed. We know that the prayers of the saints here has had material effect as God chooses to work in partnership to save souls as the team goes out preaching. Now, we went out last night. Um, we were at Hermosa Beach the night before at Newport. We did not see any souls saved this weekend, but we did have some great and wonderful conversations with believers for encouragement and with many unbelievers. So again, we're not going to go in empty-handed, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have that thought on our mind. We want to strive to work, you know, seeking the lost. We say, thus I would go on missions of mercy. We talk about going in empty-handed. No, we want to give our best to the Master. We want to be found faithful. We want to be found, as we sang, make me a blessing to someone today. If we go in the arm of the flesh, we're really not going to be much of a blessing to anybody else. We want to make sure we're doing what the Lord has assigned to us and in the power and the strength and guidance of the Holy Spirit. You know, going out and preaching to the lost, we don't preach to them uh, about obedience and works because that's a hindrance to them. They, are, they already think that's what they need uh, to have to get salvation. So, no, we. we preach repentance and grace. When we preach to the saved, it might be a message of repentance. And it's glorious to hear about grace and freedom from the law, but we need to be careful because if works and obedience is a stumbling block to the lost, oftentimes grace and freedom from the law can be a hindrance to us. We, we also need to understand we need to be obedient. We need to be in service to the master. We want to give our best for the master. I'm going to continue along the lines of my last couple of messages, which were on gifts of the, of the Spirit that is given to every believer for the, for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, for the benefit, the profit of all. And one of the key verses I spoke on last time was 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving others as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, we really emphasized last time this, this idea towards the end of my message on stewardship. And that night we heard from our brother Jeff Owers a message on stewardship. And that's where we're going to dwell this morning, uh, on stewardship. And my, my, my title of the message, Are We Good Stewards? 
You know, who are we working for? You know, the foundational thought I plan to illuminate on this morning is one of obligation. And that idea of obligation is widely embraced by the world at large. Uh, you know, by groups ranging from the scripturally sound to those who, atheists who utterly reject scripture, or even paganistic heathens. Um, and those latter groups, they, they want to be good stewards of Gaia, of the planet Earth, of creation. Indeed, as Romans tells us, they've traded the Creator in worship of the Creator and worship the created things. They like what He's made, but they utterly reject Him. Indeed, the world is obsessed with their stewardship of Gaia. We hear it all the time. Right now, there's all the uproar about the United States withdrawing from the Paris Accords for global warming. They've got a lot of fervor. Do we as saints of the living God, redeemed children, do, do we come anywhere near to their fervor that they have for things that have been made to be destroyed? Do we have that kind of fervor for the Lord? Now, I'm, I'm telling you that in preparing for this message, I spent a great deal of time under conviction. As I looked at this, I'm not here preaching at you. Uh, I'm preaching to myself. I fail in a lot of these areas. I'm caught up in things of this life and in this world. I want to have eternal vision. You know, in the, in the, in the media today, we hear topics, um, even the atheists believe that this world, in spite of our best efforts, are going to be destroyed. I'm taken somewhat with the news has been here repeated many times that the renowned physicist Stephen Hawking, an avowed atheist, fears destruction of the earth by hostile alien beings. You know, we chuckled a little bit about that, but, you know, actually, He's not completely wrong, is he? If we consider that during the tribulation period, a lot of the judgments of God are going to be carried out by demons. They're otherworldly. We were talking after the worship service this morning. I was talking about, I, I believe that the UFOs, whatever they might be, they're, they're I believe, demonic beings, spirit beings that are, be, are beginning to manifest themselves. I wouldn't be dogmatic in preaching that, but I look at it, I go, there's some signs in the heavens. And I was talking with our brother Bill this morning. Some exciting uh, things are happening in the heavens, signs in the heavens, the alignment of stars and that. We take our Bible literally. There are going to be signs in the heavens as the age draws to an end. We may not know the hour or the day, but we can discern the season. Well, if the physicists, not that all of them join them, Hawking believes we're going to be destroyed by aliens, cosmologists fear destruction by asteroid or comet, uh, biologists fear mutant life forms, Climatologists fear global warming or global cooling, depending on which decade you're in. Anthropologists see our end coming through war, and there's certainly a lot to support that. Epidemiologists predict disease, and uh, geneticists fears that there's going to be pollution of the human gene by destructive traits. And conspiracy theorists, well, they think planet Nibiru is going to crash into us. And, uh, you know, all of those things could present some upheaval to this world, but the end of this world is going to come at the hand of God as he purges it with fire. That's not so much a destruction as it is a renovation, a cleansing. You know, the flood was a renovation of the earth. It swept away evil. It didn't completely sweep it away. The final one is going to do just that, and all these things that we're trying to protect in the environment net are going to burn up. 
that time of the purging away of the earth, that's going to be the true reformation. And what will remain will be perfect. Now, in the meantime, I believe we ought to be good stewards of the environment uh, for, for life here on, on the earth, for the creation itself, and, but mostly for the glory of God. But it's temporary. It's all going to burn up. Well, like I said the last time we talked about the spiritual gifts used for the building up and ministering and profit of other saints, we're going to talk today about our responsibility, our obligation to God to be good managers of what he has given us. Again, the key verse, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received the special gift, employ it in serving others as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, William McDonald's books, um, God of Wonders and Our God is Wonderful, great little books. You can, short little um, recounts of, of history and of things that have happened that show the glory of God and there's some great lessons in there. And I happen to come across one that fit. This may seem again like a non sequitur, but I am going somewhere with it. Uh, he wrote in Our God is Wonderful of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You know, he became well known in not only the Soviet Union but throughout the world because of his moral courage in confronting that evil regime and also for enduring oppression and persecution from them. He spent years in gulags, in the, uh, the labor camps, um, enduring unspeakable conditions, uh, starvation, disease, and torture. And many of the people that were in prison with him died, and many committed suicide. And at some point, he finally lost hope. He says, I'm going to commit suicide. McDonald writes how he sat down on a bench and set a shovel down and said, I'll just sit here, and a guard will come by and take my shovel and beat me to death. An old man he'd never seen sat down next to him, picked up a stick, and just drew a, a small little cross in the dirt. MacDonald recounts how Solzhenitsyn looked at that and was reminded of the power of the cross, and that he had all power through God, and he was refreshed. And he strove again anew. And, um, and MacDonald spoke how God used Solzhenitsyn, how he became a modern-day prophet in the hands of God. He spoke to the world guided by his Christian principles, MacDonald said, having tasted the suffering of being denied basic necessities of life, he spoke to the truth that we should be good stewards of what great gifts God has given us. The Soviet Union finally expelled him, deported him to the West in 74, and a year or two later he made it to the United States. Um, I was intrigued by some of this in, in reading uh, the work of Donald, Dr. Donald Reagan, uh, the founder of Lamb and Lion Ministries. He also spoke of Solzhenitsyn's work as a modern prophet, and he said his first public speech in the United States was delivered in June of 1978. The occasion was the commencement ceremony at Harvard University, where he was granted an honorary degree. Reagan writes, he arrived on campus as a hero, but he departed as a pariah. He was booed off the campus. As he delivered a commencement address at Harvard, he exhorted the graduating class speaking out against the abuse of freedom, the compromise with evil, and the addiction to comfort. Students and faculty members alike booed him soundly. What did he say that so enraged this intelligentsia? He said, the defense of individual rights has reached such extremes as to make society as a whole defenseless against certain individuals. It is time the West, is time in the West, to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. 
went on to say, destructive and irresponsible freedom has been granted boundless space. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence, such as, for example, the misuse of liberty for moral violence against young people with motion pictures full of pornography, violence, and horror. You know, the question we, again, with a very broad brush, the question we, the professing church, the true church today, need to ask ourselves, you know, this earthly philosophy, is it rampant in our church? And we have to answer yes. We're so bombarded with this on a daily basis. We're so polluted that unless we're washed in the water of the word continually, we come out stained. Solzhenitsyn posed a, a crucial question. He, he said, he asked, how did the West decline from its triumphal march to its present sickness? He answered this question by pointing to what he called anthropocentricity, that is, in simple terms, elevation of man above God. In other words, at this point of his speech, um, he was attacking humanism, this godless philosophy that had become the religion of the Western world. Solzhenitsyn's concluding and defining statement was this, on the way from the Renaissance to our days, we have enriched our experience, but we have lost the concept of a supreme, complete entity which used to restrain our passions and our irresponsibility. The thought there is if we see God as supreme and the perfect guide, we'll be res restrained from our foolishness. This is what enraged them, that he was bringing this, this idea of a supreme God into their campus, which had been founded as a seminary. They were enraged. He finished that speech with this. He says, we have placed too much hope in political and social reforms only to find out we, have, we are being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. In the East, it was destroyed by the dealings and machinations of the ruling party. In the West, Commercial interests suffocated. This is the real crisis. And, you know, if you think about that, that last statement, you know, at least in Russia, what was destroying them was hated by the masses. This oppressive one to two percent of the population that was destroying the country and oppressing the people was hated. Here in the West, no, we love, we desire, covet, we lust after those things which are destroying. We don't want to throw them off. That is a morass into which the Western society is sinking. Now, where's the moral truth and strength going to come from? From the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And if we have faith and we're obedient, miraculous things are going to happen. It's incumbent upon the people of God to confess our sins, and, you know, repent, call upon our Lord in heaven, as Solomon gives us and tells us, if we call out to the Lord, he'll heal our land. But it's got to start with we who are God's people. A few years later, he received the Templeton Prize. It's, it's a prize given to the one who has caused the greatest dialogue on spiritual matters. It's given, what's given by, he's dead now. He knows the truth now. John Marks Templeton, a heretic, ecumenist. Um, but when Solzhenitsyn received that that award, he, he, he tried to explain why the disaster had befallen Russia and what was about to happen in the West. He says, 
men have forgotten God. That was the, the, uh, the title of his, his message. It also wasn't well received. It, the complacency and self-indulgence of the West wearied him, and when he had the opportunity, he went back to Russia, and they accepted him. Now, again, Solzhenitsyn, I, I don't know his true spiritual condition before the Lord, but he had godly principles. He finished up in the, the Russian Orthodox Church, but he was very devout, and his guiding principles were faithfulness to, to the God of heaven. But he pointed out, man has forgotten God. We see that throughout the world. Now, there are areas where there is great oppression, and those people are calling out for the Lord. There's a great renaissance, of, again, to use that term, a revival taking place in China and in India where people are under persecution, but we have it so good that we've forgotten our God. You know, the prophet Jeremiah um, asked this question in Jeremiah 2.32, uh, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? <laughs> That's not gonna happen. But God says, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Day after day, we've forgotten God. Isaiah, Isaiah says in the 17th chapter, verse 10, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God, small g. You know, we have to be careful that we don't find ourselves worshiping at the feet of a God whose name we know all too well, hedonism. It's again being addicted to the comfort of life and taking not only managerial possession of what's been given to us, but full ownership. We talked last time that unless the Lord builds it, they that build the house labor in vain in, from Psalm 127. But again, if we listen to that verse, 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received the special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Stewardship, the act of being a good steward is there's one dictionary that puts it carefully and responsibly managing something entrusted to one's care. From mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives us this. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, already his. So it's a commitment of oneself to managing that which belongs to another. You know, some have said we don't have any right of control or property, even of ourselves. And I, I would amend that a little bit. We do have control, but we're to exercise it uh, in a way which is consistent with the commands of God. You know, if we're a believer, we are by default a leader. I've said before that a, a new believer in, in Christ is a teacher. I, I'm often, before I come up, I remind myself of James 3.1. Not many of us brothers should desire to be teachers, knowing we'd be held to a stricter condemnation. Yet if you're in Christ, you're a teacher. When I've had a group of people on the street at the pier, and we've had one or two of them come to Christ and the others don't, those that don't, they're going to watch those, those that have made a profession and see if their lives change. At the moment we become a child of God, he gives us gifts to serve one another, but he's also given us all of creation over which we're to be stewards. We have some great examples in stewardship. Again, last, uh, last time our, our brother Jeff Owers gave us some. We could look at Eliezer, the, the, the servant of, of Abraham, the one whom 
Abraham told God, he's going to get all that I have because I don't have an heir. Eleazar of Damascus. And you know, again, this is apocryphal, but the Midrash, the, the Jewish teachings of tradition, is that Eleazar had a daughter that he wanted to marry Isaac. And Abraham said, you're the cursed, we're the blessed. The blessed don't marry the cursed. Now, the rabbis were not trying to beat up on Eleazar. Actually, they're giving him a compliment because Eleazar remained faithful. He actually went to procure the bride for Isaac. And when he introduced himself to Laban's family, to that group of people, he, he didn't claim who he was other than, I am Abraham's servant. We can look at Joseph. He, he was a steward for numerous people, Potiphar's house, for the jailer, and for Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And we can see that in his faithful stewardship, two nations uh, were materially saved. And through that, really, we have the, the, that nation saved through which comes our Savior. Four principles of stewardship, ownership, responsibility, accountability, and reward. The principle of ownership gives ultimate disposition of the property uh, to the owner. Everything belongs to God. You know, Psalm 24 opens with, the earth, earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all who dwell in it. But you know, God has set mankind over his creation. We see that in, in Genesis, in the, the garden. God creates everything and puts Adam in charge of it. Man is made to work, to be a steward of the creation. Now, when Adam was working in the garden before the fall, it, it wasn't work, it was a joy. You could think that he had communion with the animals. So what a, a gut-wrenching ordeal it must have been for him to see an animal die because of his sin. But it has become work. But we're still charged with that with that obligation. Deuteronomy 8.18 takes away any idea that we might have our own talents that gathers wealth to us. It says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If they have the principle of ownership, the next one's the principle of responsibility. A guy named Bill Peel writes that owners have rights, stewards have responsibilities. But you know, the truth is that all that God has made, he has given to us for enjoyment. I'm going to quote from the Young's literal translation because I love the way that this verse finishes with the present active nature of God's giving. Those rich in the present age, charge thou not to be, in other words, he's saying, tell those who are rich today not to be high-minded nor to hope in the uncertainty of riches, but in the living God who is giving to us all things richly for enjoyment. But we have the responsibility to use them in accord with the manner that God has given to us and what he expects us to do with them. Ownership, responsibility, going right along with responsibility would follow accountability. Since we've been given all these things richly over, over which we're called to be responsible, can we think for a moment that we can do with them whatever we will? We are going to give an account. We, we see that, of course, in the parables of the, the, both the good and the bad servants in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul warns us we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you not know that every deed is going to be examined? You'll receive recompense for all your deeds, be they good or be they evil? If we look at Luke 16, let's look at a passage in Luke 16 
I'm going to talk a little bit about the unjust steward. <clears throat> in the unjust steward, he, he squandered the owner's belongings, losing his job in the, in the, because of that. And when he lost his job, he's going to lose his home and his provision for living. So he's worried. Um, so the unjust steward shrewdly, Jesus tells us, conspires with those who were in debt to the master uh, to defraud the master in order that the unjust steward would have some place to live. He would be welcome into their dwelling after he's lost his job, his home, and his, his living. In Luke 16, Jesus tells us, starting with verse 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Now, unrighteous wealth, that, that's all the wealth of the earth. It's going to burn up. He's saying, if you've been unfaithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust you true riches? And I would say that's the riches of heaven. And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And again, I'm relating this to eternity because that's the context, and we're going to see that as we continue to look here. We don't own anything we have here. It all belongs to God. But I take it from this verse, one day we're going to be giving possessions that are ours in heaven. He goes on to say, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. Mammon carrying with it that idea that it is goods which are worshipped. It's, it's, we use our goods in an evil way. You know, Jesus comments on the, the shrewdness of, of the unjust steward. He's not really giving him an attaboy. It's not that he's saying, oh, what you did is good. No, he's saying what you did is shrewd. If we jump back to verse 8, uh, Jesus says, And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. In other words, he's saying the sons of darkness the sons of this age, of this world, of the fallen world, they're more shrewd in taking care of themselves than the sons of light. So he's speaking about believers or those who are children of light. Verse 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth, again, that is mammon, of unrighteousness, so that when it, the unrighteous wealth, when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. The unrighteous aren't going to be in eternal dwellings. It's, again, I look at this, and it's clear to me the context of this passage. Use what you have on earth. Use mammon of the earth to win souls for heaven. We don't want to go in empty-handed. And again, I, I, I'm not rebuking this, this assembly. Many of you tell me that you've been faithfully praying for the street ministry, and indeed all the ministries of this, this assembly. And, and God is surely blessing on account of that. But we're getting towards the end of the race. And as Joe Reese once said, everybody knows that you don't slow down at the end of a race. That's when you speed up. So, again, by way of encouragement, we want to make sure we're using what's been given to us to impact the world for eternity. For these things that are temporary in nature are going to burn up. The only thing of value in this world is a human soul. Everything else is going to burn. You know, we talk about taking gold with us to heaven. 
You get to the gate and you're going to say, what did you bring paving material for? The wealth of this world is meaningless unless you see the wealth of a human soul because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ saw. That's what caused him to despise the cross and endure it because of the joy set before him. That is the redemption of souls. Well, if we have ownership and responsibility followed by accountability, the, the final one is reward of the fourth principle. You know, all is going to be revealed. You know, at the Wednesday night Bible study, we were, we were looking at how Eliab had unjustly accused his brother David of, of, of some things, and he was judging him, condemning him. And our brother quoted 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Boy, if we let that stand right there, that's a, that's a scary statement. But just like Romans 6.23 that starts out with something that's very frightening, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It ends gloriously. Listen to this one. God's going to both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Anybody who's in Christ is going to receive praise. At the very least, it's me. you were smart enough to get saved. How wise you are. Paul does warn us that in 1 Corinthians 3, there will be those in heaven who all their works burn up, yet they themselves will be, will be saved as if passing through fire. And picture me going into heaven with nothing but my hair and it being singed. Um, again, fear can be a good motivator. Fear motivates me to prepare before I get up and speak. As I said, you know, James warns us. You know, Paul writes to the Colossians in the third chapter, that glorious chapter on how we should live a life. He says, do all that you do to the, um, as if working for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. We want to hear that. We mentioned Matthew 25, the, the parable of the, both the good and the wicked servants. We want to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I'll give you much. Or enter into your master's happiness. Paul ends the 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, with, you know that all your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Hebrews 6.10 tells us that God would be unjust if he were to forget every act of kindness we've done for the love of his name and ministering to the saints and continuing to minister. How about the words of Jesus in Revelation 22? Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You know, God gives us both ends of the spectrum, those areas which motivate us because of a fear and also those areas which motivate us out of joy and this, this desire to be rewarded. We're afraid of that sometimes. You know, we, we don't want to talk about works, yet it's important. Turn to Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. You know, our brother David shared from here uh, a couple of excellent messages. You know, often when we talk about stewardship, we end up going, going here. Because there is material effect and a material impact on our daily walk based on, on how our walk is with the Lord. In chapter 1 of the prophet Haggai, 
beginning with verse 3, says, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies desolate? Now he's talking about the house of the Lord, but now the house of the Lord is our bodies, right? We're a temple for the Holy Spirit. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And he goes on to tell him, you know, go up to the mountains, get some wood, come back, fix the house, make things right. You know, I've called for a drought on the land. He says, you, you want showers of blessings we were singing? Mercy drops around us are falling. You want showers of blessings? Be the obedient, faithful servant. Steward well what has been put into your control, and the Lord will load more up. I'm, I'm, I utterly reject word of faith, utterance things, but... But obedience, it's scriptural. He's admonishing people. You're losing out because you're being disobedient. You're focusing on your own house instead of mine. Talk about the manifold grace of God. We, last time we covered grace, it's charis in the Greek. It just, it just means a gift. And manifold, well, that, that can be one thing spreading out into many or, or many things spreading coming down into one. But we would rightly say the manifold grace of God Again, it's all creation. It's, it's, it's everything. I put together just a, this is a, just a, a small partial list of some of the things we've been given. We're to be stewards over. It's God's love. And not just God's love, but he's given us the ability to love as well. We've been given Jesus Christ, as we're told in John 3, 16. Salvation. That's the, the removal of the penalty of our sin. We've been given eternal life. Righteousness has been given to it. That was that unfair trade. We talked about 2 Corinthians 5.21. My sin went to Jesus and his righteousness came to me. We've been given the Holy Spirit, our, our body, the gospel. How about that precious seed? God's word, time, good works that God prepared before us that we might walk amongst them. A birthright, an inheritance, our talents, spiritual gifts as we spoke on last time. Indeed, victory, the final one is victory, victory over death in the grave. Some of our, our, our gifts are, that have been given to us, it's hard for us to be good managers of them or to turn them over to God. You know, usually when we're talking about stewardship in the church, it's finances. Um, this, this, this gathering has been very faithful. There is much that goes out to minister to saints and missionaries around the world for the spreading of the gospel. That's a tough one to deal with. How about our tongue? The Lord has given us the tongue. James in the third chapter again gives us a full picture of what a fire, well, it can set up a fire, an entire forest. If we look at some of the, the, the gifts, you know, love, uh, not only has God given us his love, as I said, but he's also given us the ability to love. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples and that you have love one for another. We quoted 1 Peter 4.10. How about 1 Peter 4.7 and 8? Um, the end of all things is near. And we're running out of time. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We've been given Jesus Christ. 
you know, last time we went through, uh, I, I spent some time talking about that difficult passage in Hebrews chapter 6, and that's really is all about what are we doing with the, the Christ that's been given to us. The elementary things in the opening of that chapter are getting saved and being redeemed away from uh, damnation. Those are elementary. The Apostle Paul then goes on to talk about these things we've been given. These are all written in the Greek. I'll just say the phrases. In the Greek, they're in the aorist. They're a perfect, complete, irrevocable. Speaking of believers, once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, and tasted of the powers of the age to come. Those have all been fully complete and perfected forever in the life of every believer. These next phrases are in the present active. These are while they're, go they're, they're going on, but you can stop them at any time. Those who have fallen away, crucified to themselves the Son of God, put Him to open shame. And while all those are active, then that phrase, renew them, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Again, this is, I'm, I, this is speaking, I believe, very clearly to, in concert with that passage in Haggai. When you're disobedient, the hand of God and blessing is removed. And the reason I can say that is the next verse, uh, in verse 7 there, says, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Go back to the passage in, in John chapter 15 where Jesus you know, says, you must remain in me if you're to bear any fruit. Other warning passages in Hebrews uh, 10 talks about uh, those who go on self, uh, sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth. He asks, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? So again, this is speaking to believers. You know, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, he says. And then the next few verses, in Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 35, really, he's saying, you used to be good stewards. He says, but remember the former days, he goes on to tell them when you suffered. He quotes from Habakkuk in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Paul speaks, he says, we, have, we think of better things of you. We're not of those who shrink back to destruction. But again, it's clearly that passage is written to believers. We've been given uh, eternal life, as I said, our, our salvation, you know, Romans 6.23. Again, another warning in Hebrews 2 is, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? As I've pointed out previously, you can only neglect something you've already received. We've been given righteousness, as we talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Holy Spirit, the seal, the promise, the betrothal ring. We're sealed by Him until the day of redemption, as Ephesians 4.30 tells us. We've been given this body. Paul says, you know, do you not know you've been bought with a price? You're not your own? He says, therefore, glorify God in your body. So we talked about we've been given the gospel. Mark, we're commanded, go into the world and preach the gospel into all creation. 
Paul, writing to the Romans, says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So he was eager to preach the gospel even unto them. But he, he says this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We want to assign that just to unbelievers. And they're certainly going to bear judgment for that, but I think Paul here is also saying, I'd be unrighteous if I withhold this truth, the truth of the gospel. You know, he says that in First uh, Corinthians 9. He says, if, you know, if I preach the gospel, I, I don't have anything to boast of. I'm, I'm under compulsion. But he says, woe unto me if I fail or if I preach not the gospel. Talked about sowing with tears. You know, Psalm 126 says, um, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come in again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. We've been given God's word. And by it, the receiving of God's word is everything sanctified, all that we receive. We need to be careful that we preach the whole counsel. That's why Paul could say in Acts 20, I'm innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shrunk back from teaching the whole counsel of God. And you know, even as you're listening to me, the most precious commodity we have perhaps is time. It's slipping away. Are we using our time? In Ephesians 5, Paul admonishes us, let no one deceive you with empty words. We get caught up in emptiness. We waste our time on, on things that have no eternal value. And he finishes by that, make the most of your time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And there's numbers of others, as I said, good works, are birthright, inheritance, talents, spiritual gifts. But as I was just speaking of time, we've, we've run out. I'll, I'll finish with just a couple of short thoughts here. I mentioned the final gift we've been given is victory. That victory is ours. We possess it already. But the fruition of it is yet in the future for us. We can impact the degree of victory that, that we can enjoy and the rewards that we can receive. Again, the, the, you know, Christians are, are, are fond of painting the, the beam of the judgment seat of Christ as a place where only accolades are handed out, but that's not what the scripture says. It says we must receive recompense, that is reward for our deeds, be they good or be they evil. Again, the penalty of our sins put away, that's not gonna be discussed there. It's, it has to do with how faithful of a steward uh, have we been. But speaking of victory, Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 12, verse 2 says, See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Now, I'm quoting there from, the, some, from a translation I almost never quote from, the New Living Translation. You know, in that one verse, there's five gifts given. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, we have that glorious statement that, you know, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That sting was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us the victory, the certainty of our abiding in heaven forever in the presence of the glory of God has been made certain by the, the shedding of the blood of the Lamb for all who have apprehended that, claimed it for themselves, this free gift given.
but Scripture is full of admonition and exhortation that we be faithful, that we strive for the prize, that we store up treasure in heaven, that we're found to be faithful stewards for the Lord Jesus Christ, for our Master who gave himself for us. And I guess the, the question we would ask, and you can find it in Galatians chapter 4, you know, he's asking, asking them why they become foolish and how they're trying to finish in the flesh, and it almost seems counterintuitive to this message, but he says, now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless, elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? He's telling them that because he had just finished telling them, you used, before you knew God, you used to serve the worthless gods. Oh, that we would see that everything that the hand of the Lord has given us is a blessing for our enjoyment, as we read, but that we would enjoy it according to the instruction and the guidance of our God, of our Savior, and of His Spirit, that we would do all things, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, to bring glory to God, all for the glory of God. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we're convicted none of us can stand before You and say that we're a full and complete faithful steward. It's our desire to worship first and then to demonstrate true worship by obedience. How glorious it is that you have visited us in our gathering, that the Spirit was evident in the moving of the, uh, the worship service this morning. And we pray that your word would stir us up to action and obedience, that our lives may demonstrate a true love by being disciples who reflect your love and serve with a great desire to be a faithful steward of all that you've entrusted us with. Father, as we, as we break and have a time of a celebration for those who have, uh, have graduated, moving on in learning and gathering of knowledge, may you bless them with wisdom to deploy that knowledge in a manner which accomplishes great things for the kingdom, for your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless the meal we're about to share. We thank you for the hands that have prepared it. Pray that you would bless them as well. Again, that all we do, we would manifest a spirit of unity and love for one another, following the example that was set for us in your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.